And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to another episode of All of the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, along with... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you're checking us out on Facebook, remember to like our page and share this with your friends. And if you're listening to the podcast version of this, thank you for tuning in. And do know that you're missing out on my mystery colored tie because it's like red and blue dots if you are up close, but from afar, it's not purple. It's kind of like a rusty color, I'm told, which makes sense because I'm Mr. Rustin and I get called Rusty Rustin sometimes. <laughs> but anyways, thank you for tuning in. Now, we've got another great episode for you today featuring two very special guests. One is a board member at a local nonprofit here in the Los Angeles area, serving the needs of LA's foster youth. Across the United States, foster youth are some of the highest need students, but also some of the lowest performing. When it comes to meeting the needs of this very important subgroup of students, what is it that educators need to know to help our foster youth succeed? Our other guest is gonna be joining us and presenting in today's show and tell. It's gonna be a lot of fun, so we look forward to jumping into it together with you. But first, we dive into some headlines in a segment we call the warm up. To ring in the celebration of freedom and democracy, the Trump administration and Confederate General, oh, excuse me, uh, I mean Attorney General, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions announced in July that they would be rescinding two Obama administration policy guidelines on the consideration of race in school admissions. The guidelines, which do not have the force of law, but give some insight into what institutional behaviors will be supported by the federal government, essentially encouraged schools and universities to diversify their student body. They reminded schools that they have a compelling interest in creating a diverse student body and that the court has long held that the consideration of race as one factor in admission decisions is constitutional and that schools are seeking to diversify who are seeking to diversify should consider race in a narrowly tailored way. Trump, Sessions, and my favorite, Betsy DeVos, collectively rescinded the Obama guidelines and are reverting to Bush-era versions, which discouraged the consideration of race and stated that schools should use race-neutral policies only. Although the policy guidelines don't impact existing legal precedent recently affirmed by the Supreme Court in the Fisher versus Texas decision that schools can consider race in admissions, in, in admissions criteria, Critics of the movement feel it is laying the groundwork for legal challenges to affirmative action. This includes the controversy surrounding Harvard University's admissions policy, which has been challenged recently in federal court as discriminating against Asian students who would be more represented if the university's affirmative action policy went away. And the worry about the legal future of affirmative action is particularly concerning now as retiring Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote the majority opinion affirming its legality in the Fisher case. So Manuel, clearly Betsy, Jeff, and Donald are opposed to affirmative action. But should we be taking this as a major threat to what we know as affirmative action? Or is this just chest thumping by the administration? Well, look, if this administration wants to go on the attack against affirmative action, I hope they're including Rich Kid Affirmative Action 2, AKA Legacy Admissions, mm. because roughly a third of incoming freshmen uh, at Harvard are legacy admits. So if we're talking about looking at college admissions and trying to uh, make them more equitable and more fair, and if that's their reasoning for looking into race-based admissions, then they need to look into legacy admissions too. And I doubt they're doing that. In fact, I know for a fact they're not doing that. Um, and yeah. legacy admissions, uh, a lot of them are rooted in early 20th century efforts to try to uh, keep Jewish students and immigrants from uh, Italy and other parts of Europe out of these schools. Mm. So the administration's move now towards looking at race-based admissions seems to be in keeping with that tradition of keeping colleges for the most privileged in our society, which means white upper middle class or upper class students. So, I mean, I just call BS on this whole move. You know, in California, California voted out affirmative action back in the late 90s with Prop 209. Um, so it's something that more or less has been um, absent from schooling or from uh, college admissions in California for quite some time. 
But to see the administration keep going after it nationwide is just, I mean, again, I call BS. Uh, I don't think I have anything to add. Um, well said, man. Uh, <laughs> man. Yeah. Ra racism rearing its head. Betsy. Yeah. And the rest of them. Yes. All right. So on to our next story. Um, question for you. Do you remember that wave of teacher strikes that spread across the nation last spring? Well, it just might have given way to a wave of teachers being elected to office this fall. Fed up with state and national legislators failing to adequately fund our schools and invest in our public education system, teachers in several states have added their own names to the ballot. In Oklahoma, nearly 100 teachers and administrators were on June's primary ballots to unseat Republican legislators who resisted their efforts to boost education funding. Five of the seven West Virginia teachers who appeared in that state's primary have advanced to this November's election, and in Kentucky, math teacher Travis Brenda unseated House Majority Floor Leader Jonathan Schell for the GOP nomination, vowing to protect public education. Many of the teachers running for office are Republicans who oppose their party's refusal to support traditional public education. The Republican Party is not known for supporting unions, but these educators were active participants in those union-led strikes last spring. Of course, this summer's Janus decision is seen by many as a huge blow to the future of teacher unions, with the Supreme Court ruling that public sector labor unions can no longer force non-members to pay agency fees. Jeff, there's a lot going on here with regards to political activity of teachers and teacher unions. What do you think this all means? Uh, you're right, there's a lot going on here, so I'm gonna try and take it in chunks. Uh, first, I'll say, uh, the Janus decision is exactly what we had expected it to be. Um, it definitely represents a giant uh, blow to the financial and political power of teachers unions and all public sector unions. And uh, this has nothing to do with the First Amendment like they would claim in the court documents. This is about weakening organized labor. Uh, so on, uh, with that in mind, I'm really excited to see that educators are putting their hat in the ring, getting involved in politics. Uh, we need more people in positions of power who understand what it's like to be an educator and who understand the needs of schools and communities. Uh, that said, uh, I'm highly skeptical of everything Republican uh, at this point in American history. I was just recently in Phoenix uh, doing some consulting and uh, walking down the street in 114 degree weather, uh, trying not to melt. And at the uh, corner of a major intersection, there was a giant five foot or six foot wide uh, sign right on the side of the road for everyone to see about some Republican candidate for state superintendent of instruction in Arizona with the words right at the top of the sign, make education great again. So, you know, this is Arizona, uh, one candidate, right? But um, I think we have to be suspicious of uh, folks running in the context of a party that has become the party of white supremacy and the party uh, that's doing real damage to public school students in this country. So I would need to know more about these candidates before offering any praise of them personally. Um, in general, the idea of teachers getting involved is great. We'll see about these particular teachers and what they are all about. Hey man, Republicans, they free the slaves, man. Think about it. <laughs> Go out and vote, people. Oh, Go out and vote. Oh, you hurt my soul a little bit with that one, Matt. Well, <laughs> yes. For our third warm-up segment, we turn to a story out of California about child care workers. A strong majority of child care workers in California are paid so little that they qualify for government assistance programs, according to a recent study published by the Center for the Study of Child Care Employment at UC Berkeley. EdSource reports that the median income for child care workers in the state is $12.29 per hour with the median annual salary hovering at $25,500. And for those of you who may need a refresher on your sixth grade math standards, that means that half of the childcare workers out there make less than that each year. That's right, half. For you policy wonks out there who might be tempted to say, well, wait, that's above the federal poverty level, which is an embarrassingly inadequate $24,250 per year, you'd technically be right. But in California, the state sets its own poverty level at $30,000 per year to adjust for the state's high cost of living. So this news is actually even worse than it might seem. 
And if we zoom out to the entire nation, we see a similar problem. Nationally, 53% of childcare workers who are largely women and often women of color are on at least one government assistance program to cover basic costs of living like housing, food, and medical coverage. In fact, only five states pay childcare workers a wage that is adequate to meet the state's minimum standard for a living wage. Here at All of the Above, we've previously reported on low pay for preschool educators whose median income nationally is just above $28,000 per year. So unfortunately, it seems that the younger the children, the lower the pay for the adults who guide them through these crucial years of learning language, spatial awareness, physical coordination, brain development, socialization, and more. Manuel, some would say that childcare workers often lack the equivalent education and training that their K-12 teacher peers have, and that raising wages would balloon already exorbitant childcare costs. Are they right, or do we have a problem here we need to fix? Man, this is an enormous problem. You mentioned in that that only five states pay uh, average childcare worker a living wage, yeah. which means 45 states, 45 of the 50, you don't earn enough to be able to provide and not be on government assistance, and you are caring for children. Yeah. Where are the priorities? I mean, think about how much money we spend on prisons, how much money we spend on defense, how much money we spend on so many other programs that are getting billions and billions and billions. And now we're looking at this idea that like, oh, well, if you pay them more, that's going to balloon childcare costs. No, this is, we have to fix this. We have to fix this. I mean, obviously children are the future and all that. Twelve twenty-nine an hour in California? Yeah. Nah, that, nah, unacceptable. Yeah. Just nah. And when you think about how much people are paying for childcare, I have friends uh, today right. who, uh, between a married couple, have decided that it's more cost effective to have one of them not work and stay home and take care of the kids than it would be to have, uh, in this case, her work because all or almost all of her salary would go towards paying for childcare, right? So, uh, you know, this is, in my mind, just an egregious, uh, you know, sort of issue. We definitely need to fix this. Absolutely. All right, for today's show and tell, we have a special guest here by the name of Mimi Dow. Miss Mimi Dow is a English teacher, a high school English teacher, and she is here for our show and tell segment today. Uh, Miss Dow, what did you bring to show for us today? Okay, so for my show and tell, I brought in this little bonsai tree, and it represents gardening. Phenomenal, I know. So now I don't consider myself as a talented gardener by any means. In no way would I ever claim to have a green thumb. But I do like plants. They bring life to a room by giving it color and texture. They replace carbon dioxide with oxygen. And just like the kids at our school, they give me life. They are life. And proper gardening is what's needed to help these plants survive. And not just survive, but thrive. So you may have the best intentions as a gardener, but if you overwater one type of plant, it can die. Another type of plant might need constant watering. And I can give as much love and attention to this bonsai tree as I want, but it will struggle to thrive without any direct sunlight. Recently, I left to spend time with my family for about a week and a half, and it's been like 90 to 110 degrees Fahrenheit here in the 626. I came back, and while the bonsai tree was fine, another plant on my desk, the devil's ivy, I felt like I had to give it CPR or something because it looked close to dying. It was wilted to one side, away from the window. You could tell it was just like trying to like climb away from that sunlight. So lesson learned, the devil's ivy cannot handle too much direct sunlight. Anyway, I think caring for plants is a good analogy for how we as educators and how all the adults in children's lives should approach the decisions that we make when it comes to how we interact with them, teach them, and nurture them to help them reach their fullest potential. Because just like plants, different kids need different things. And adults, including myself, often need to remind ourselves that what worked really well for us when we were their age or what's worked really well for other students in the past or even what's worked really well now for just one period of kids might not be what another period of kids need. And the people I know who work with kids, whether they're teachers, tutors, family members, administrators, they have good intentions, they care. And obviously I know it's impractical, unrealistic to expect any one individual to magically identify the customary needs of every single kid that comes into his or her life. For instance, I absolutely love and adore my mom, but as a single mom of four kids, hell yeah, it was hard for her to adapt to the needs of all four kids. 
especially in a new country with a high school diploma from Vietnam, having three boys when she came from a family of five daughters. And just because her parenting style worked really well for me, at least when it came to my academics, it didn't mean that it met the needs of my brothers. So as a teacher, the more kids you have, obviously the more help you need. And there's nothing wrong with getting that extra help or maybe recognizing that you don't have what's necessary to give the kid what he or she needs. And then trying to find the people who can give the kid what they need. The same way just one gardener is not enough to manage all the plants at the Huntington Library. And if you've never been to the Huntington Library in Pasadena, it's a lot of plants. So it's not a poor reflection on you as a teacher if something you're doing with a kid or a class or all your classes in one year is not working. But as the adults, it is our responsibility to try and identify what it is that we can do better or do differently to meet the needs of the kids who come through our doors. It would be pretty ridiculous if I got mad at my plants for wilting or dying on me just because I put the plant that needed sunlight in a dark corner or a plant that can't handle sunlight in direct sunlight. So I just need to learn and adapt. And again, it might not mean that there's something inherently bad about your curriculum, your personality, your classroom management, teaching strategies. It just might not be what this specific group of kids need. So there's nothing wrong with updating or adapting. Or you can flip it. Just because there's this new popular shiny technology or curriculum doesn't mean that's what your kids need. So then it becomes your responsibility to reject new trends that would hurt your kids' progress. So one example is that Latinos are now the nation's largest minority group. But as a teacher, you can either complain about how your students are not having, taking an interest in the traditional literary canon, or you can adapt your curriculum and educate yourself and have a mix of both literature traditionally taught in English classes with literature that may be more culturally relevant to your students, that help your students see more of themselves in different roles and characters. According to the U.S. National Institute of Health, LGBTQ kids who experience rejection for their sexual orientation or gender identity are at a way greater risk for depression, anxiety, and suicide. It's okay if you don't personally understand the LGBTQ population or if you think it's a lifestyle choice that goes against your religion. But if you know that at that moment, that child, that student, when he comes out to you or she comes out to you, that in that moment you don't show complete acceptance, that kid becomes way more likely to attempt suicide. So if you know that, you best hide whatever misgivings you have and be as loving and accepting to that kid as possible because that's what the kid needs. So anyway, those are just a few specific examples, but just to summarize, different kids need different things and it's our job as the adults in their lives to update and adapt to the best of our abilities to meet those needs. And that's my show and tell. Wow, uh, Mimi, I'm so glad you came today uh, for a few reasons. First of all, I love plants, and uh, this is the first living show-and-tell item that we've had so far, so props to you for uh, taking us to the next level. Um, second of all, uh, you know, I think what you said is really one of the simplest but most profound things in our profession that um, all of us can understand in other parts of our lives. Um, people who have children, people who have pets, people who have plants know that different things need different things, right? Um, and we can practice that in our lives in some ways, but it's difficult to do in the classroom. And some of that is because there's 30 or 35 students in a class, and that just makes it harder. But um, it's also just a challenge, I think, for educators to remember that because a student is having difficulty, it may not be a personal issue with yeah. you. It may be they just need something different, right? Yeah. And part of our challenge is to, is to find that. Um, and it makes me think of this, this quote that, um, you know, that the parents aren't keeping all the good kids at home and sending <laughs> us the bad ones, right? Like they're sending us the best that they have. These are the kids. They deal and, with them too. <laughs> right. And they might be different than the kids were 10 or 20 years ago yeah. or 50 years ago, but these are the children. And our yeah. job is to teach them and understand them and work to, to meet their needs. And so uh, I, I just really loved what you had to say. So thank you for that. So I'm going to have a plant in my classroom this year for the first time ever. Mm -hmm. It was a gift from a student last year. And I definitely hope it doesn't die. And I like what you said about the devil's ivy and how it kind of showed you that it didn't need that sunlight. Yeah. Um, and that's an important reminder that, you know, just like plants will show you what they need, what works, what doesn't work, kids will do the same thing. And as yeah. a teacher, you have to be willing to listen. Not just willing to listen, but you have to constantly listen and reflect on what's going on in your classroom so that you can better identify what's working well for that particular student or yeah. what's not working well. So thank you for that reminder and thank you for being on All of the Above. Thanks for having me. All right, up next is our seminar.
According to the U.S. Department of Education, there are roughly 270,000 school-aged children in foster care across the country. In Los Angeles County alone, more than 21,000 students are in foster care. Numerous studies show that foster youth are more likely than their peers to experience a host of challenges that negatively impact their educational outcomes. A 2016 study in the Journal of Pediatrics revealed that children placed in foster care are at a greater risk of mental and emotional challenges, including higher rates of depression, anxiety, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and other behavioral issues. Foster students typically experience higher school mobility than other students, often because of changes in placement while in the foster care system. According to the Stewart Foundation, 69% of foster youth in California had three or more placements during their time in the foster care system. Each change in school can result in delayed enrollment or difficulty transferring academic records. And students may lose four to six months of educational progress with each school change. According to the Alliance for Children's Rights, only 58% of young people in foster care graduate from high school. And only 3% graduate from college eventually. The Stewart Foundation estimates that the high school completion rate for foster youth in California may be as low as 45%. In Los Angeles, the court-appointed Special Advocates for Children report that 27% of the homeless population in the city spent time in foster care, and 25% of young men who age out of the system are incarcerated within two years. These troubling outcomes do not speak to the strength and resilience of so many foster youth who have succeeded against all odds to graduate from college and find success in a professional career. In order to reach beyond the troubling statistics and examine how teachers across the nation can better support their students who experience the challenges of foster placement, we invited a guest who has a personal understanding of how being in foster care impacts one's educational experience. All right, our guest for today is Tramel Berger, who currently serves as a board member for United Friends of the Children which is an organization dedicated to supporting foster youth in the Los Angeles area. An architectural designer who currently works as a project manager for DPR Construction, Tramel is here to share with us his experience growing up in foster care and how he was able to beat the odds and graduate from college. This year, he was awarded the Nancy M. Daly Founders Award for his continued efforts being an advocate for foster youth in Los Angeles. Tramel, welcome to all of the above. Thank you, happy to be here. Uh, Tramel, yes, uh, we're really excited to have you, and I'm uh, wondering if you can just start off by telling us a bit about this uh, Nancy M. Daly Founders Award that you won, and about uh, the work of uh, the organization that you sit on the board of, uh, United Friends of the Children. Sure, absolutely. So United Friends of the Children is an organization that to date right now, on an annual basis, serves around 1,400 foster youth. But to put that in perspective, there are almost 30,000 foster youth in L.A. County alone. Mm. L.A. County has one of the highest concentrations in the entire country for foster children, which is why there are so many organizations supporting foster youth in California and particularly in L.A. So United Friends of the Children was founded nearly 40 years ago by Nancy Daly. Um, and the organization was founded after she visited a place called McLaren Hall, was, which was a place where they would put children who were in foster care. But she was shocked at the way that the student, uh, that the, the youth were living and it didn't feel much like a home. And so she created this organization that was premised on the idea that we're going to treat all children as our own. And nearly 40 years later, the impact is clear. United Friends of the Children, uh, for youth who are in the program for at least four years, over 95% graduate from high school, over 70% of the youth in our college sponsorship program graduate from college. So United Friends of the Children has a tremendous impact on the lives of foster children. And I know that personally because I was actually a program participant. Mm. So I joined the program in 2004. Um, 
and went to school, Catholic University in Washington, D.C., and graduated. So they were there to support me throughout some of the most difficult moments of my life. And after I graduated, I just wanted to give back. And so I became an active volunteer in 2008, participating in anything that I could. And then 2011, they invited me to join their board of directors. And this year, they it extended me the Founders Award. Yeah, well, congratulations. Thank you. On a well-deserved honor and uh, success of uh, the mission in the flesh right here. So yeah. it's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. And your acceptance speech is something that I was really riveted by. We're gonna put a link, of it, link to it on our website. And in that acceptance speech, you mentioned um, a little bit about your experience growing up in the foster care system. Now, what we're really curious about is um, hearing your perspective on what your educational experience was like having been in foster care. And is, if there's anything in particular about your educational experience that maybe educators or teachers don't realize about in terms of being a student who's in foster care. Sure, sure. So I'll kind of start chronologically just a sure. little bit starting from elementary school. So I went to four different elementary schools, two different middle schools and two different high schools. When I was in the eighth grade, I was kicked out of Enterprise Middle School in Compton, and I was out of school for nearly a month because when I got kicked out, there wasn't a single middle school in Compton that would accept me. Damn. I know that seems like What did you do to get kicked out, if you don't mind us asking? I got in a fight, oh, okay. but it had been the last straw. Okay. The, so many people had tried to intervene to save me. Uh, there are a number of advocates who had worked within the local community who really, really just wanted to give me an opportunity, but the principal had felt that I had just gone to the trouble well a little bit too much right. and had had enough. And apparently he had enough to the extent that no other middle school really wanted to. So I ended up going to Gompers Middle School um, in South LA, the only school that I could get into. Uh, and I was at risk of almost having to repeat the eighth grade. Uh, luckily, I was able to get over that. But to your point, the one thing that I would want educators to know is just the truly impact, the true impact that they can have on a student just by simple, honest words. I still have memories to this day of teachers who maybe took a day to sit down at me, pull me aside, and say, look, Jamal, I know this isn't you. You're a really smart kid. And, and be really honest about it and say, you know, I'm looking through your work. You have good ideas. You have great ideas. And so when a teacher goes out of their way to compliment you, and not only just compliment you in a general way, but compliment you in a very specific way, that can stay with you for a very long time. And when you have a lot of trauma in your life and you feel like you, know, you don't have much to live for, those words can be you know, just a light of hope. Because you, you don't know. I, one of the things that always surprises me is I always talk to a lot of my peers and I said, when was the last time someone told you you were good at something? And you'd be surprised how many people can't really recount or uh, recall. And so I think that's the one thing that I would want to know, that I would want the teachers to know, and me wanting to actually reach out and thank them for the ones who did, is that simple, honest words can go a long way because sometimes we don't have anything else to inspire us. Yeah, I, uh, I think the you know the point you're making around like the the power of having your your skills and your talents and your self worth affirmed uh, is really important in general, um, even for young folks who, who are in the best of situations. Um, but you, I know, have said in the past that there's kind of a um, a moment of uh, of reconciliation, I guess, that all. Um, students who are uh, in the foster system come to grapple with, which is, um, you know, something to the effect of, you know, what, what was wrong with me uh, that the people who brought me into this world didn't want me? And um, I'm wondering if you can say a little more about that and also the, the impact that that type of thinking can have on a, on a youngster's ability to engage or not engage in school. Yeah, sure. So when you are young 
and you're in foster care, you don't quite have the mental capability to understand exactly what transpired. Uh, some people go through foster care later on in life, but especially when it happens, uh, as in my case, I became a foster kid when I was six months old. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom went to go purchase a baby bed and dropped me off at my aunt's to ask her if she would watch me and just did not come back. Right, so that was my entry to foster care and then I had four other placements after that. So when you think about that process as a young kid, you don't really have the ability to connect it, but you have to deal with this unknown fear and struggle and pain and you have this rage and you can't understand it. And as you get older and you start to understand what happened, you just have this sense of, man, what's, what was wrong with me? Like, well, what was so wrong with me that people gave me up? Because when you look at the majority of people in the world, they don't have that problem. So you can't help to think that there was something wrong with you. That the reason why you're a foster kid, the reason why your life is the way that it is, is because you're worthless, right? So that that's the echoing question that replays in your head. And I think as you get older, you know, the body, the mind wants to preserve itself. So sometimes you go from feeling, you know, having that question echo of feeling like you're nothing, but then there's a certain resiliency that kind of pops up, almost a defiance mm. that says, no, they're not right. None of that's right. And so if you're, for example, struggling in school and it's not making sense, you will often be able to justify not trying by saying, well, school is important. School doesn't work for me. And so instead of feeling like, you know, you are a person who is not good at something, you kind of rationalize it as saying, well, it's not for me. And you kind of give yourself uh, a license to, 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 to not try or to not attempt. But it's all in an effort to get away from that echoing question that's telling you that you're nothing, right? And so that, that's kind of the, the big trouble that a lot of foster youth have to deal with. And I think sometimes it gets misdiagnosed. Um, you know, when people talk about uh, what, what they've been through. And so foster youth have to deal with that on a, on a consistent basis. You're constantly wondering and having to deal with this echoing question every time you fail is, man, maybe I'm just not worth anything. Maybe mm -hmm. I'm just not destined to do anything good. And as you get older, you wanna protect yourself. Nobody likes to feel that they are incapable of doing something that people can do naturally or normally. And so that's, that's the challenge, is that even minor disappointment can explode to something much bigger because it connects and brings up that question that they've been wrestling with for a very long time. And that is something that I think a lot of people need to be mindful of, that even a simple low grade on a test when a student has tried very hard, mm. that can actually magnify into something bigger because to have tried and to have not gotten to what you feel like is acceptable can lead you to a downward spiral. And then all of a sudden, that question, you're not worth anything. This is, you know, <laughs> you're the reason why they abandon you is because you're not worth it. You start to buy into that. And so that's the challenge that a lot of foster youth have to deal with. And the youth who've experienced trauma in general. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned that phrase downward spiral and uh, something in uh, that uh, Manuel and I were talking about before the show was this kind of uh, unfortunate downward spiral that um, I think a lot of foster youth fall into and, and other students who are, who are dealing with uh, trauma-related issues where, you know, because of the circumstance that the child is in, they also come to school a lot of times with behaviors that are the type of behaviors that tend to get you into trouble. And of course there's bias and other things in the system that, that magnify that. Um, but sometimes kids can just present in a way that, that makes it difficult, right? And so they wind up getting into more trouble and then adults wind up forming negative impressions of who this child is and the child develops an identity as you know well school's not for me or i can't be successful and it sort of compounds and compounds into 
uh, more disengagement from school and more trouble from the adults in school. Um, so, you know, given your um, personal story and given your, you know, sense of perspective and, and I think wisdom on this issue, what might you um, offer up to educators out there who are um, maybe recognizing what you're describing is like, you know, I have that kid in my class right now, or I, I've known several kids like that, um, and I see the spiral, I want to reverse it, I want to get them on an upward spiral. Um, what, what kind of advice or insights might you offer to, to educators working with young people in that situation? Sure, sure. So I think it's helpful to kind of put some context to it. So you've already kind of understood a little bit about my story, but I want to kind of clarify it a little bit yeah. more. Um, so I was in special education classes from the second grade to the ninth grade. And so to put that in perspective, what that means, uh, when I was in eighth grade, my English and math book said second grade, right? That, that, that was the level that I was being taught at, that, that, <laughs> you know, at the eighth grade. And, you know, I had a lot of challenges growing up. I had a lot of anger to deal with, uh, very quick to rush and let anger consume me. And so after that experience of being in special education classes and finding people who enough people to say, hey, look, there's something in you if you try, if you work at it. And, you know, we can get into this a little bit more, but after I got out of special education classes in the ninth grade, uh, in the 10th grade, I got a 4.0 GPA. Mm. And then I did that for another semester and another semester. And I graduated from high school uh, in the top 8% of my class. And I went wow. to college. Wow. Right? I was in the eighth grade being taught out of second grade English and math books. Right? And then to have four years later, graduated in the top 8% of my class, go to college, get a scholarship, you know, that, that's one perspective. And there's one other student that I went to school with that I always tell the story to people. His name was Bobby. And we were in our geometry class in the 10th grade. Bobby always skipped class. He never showed up, didn't make sense. So he failed every exam, everything, uh, midterm, all the homework. But come the final, he got 100%, 100%. And you know what the teacher did? And, and I can't fault her for it, she failed him. And it's unfortunate because this student, this, this, this young man had so much potential, right? He, he basically self-taught him, he self-taught himself algebra because he never came to class, but he aced the test. <laughs> so I, I think that if we can start to look at people from the perspective of their potential, rather than what drags them down, and focus on how do we get them to see what they are capable of, rather than beating them down, hmm. I, I think that can help make a shift in the mind. Because where that came for me is, you know, traditional instruction just did not work for me. I didn't understand the way they taught math. It, it, it didn't make sense at all. And so it was a great struggle for me. And so a part of it was I didn't want to try because none of it made sense. And I knew that it didn't make sense. And I had a teacher sit down and say, you know, different. sometimes kids learn different. And someone Lewis sat down with me and explained, look, pay attention. What works for your mind? What makes sense to you? You know, and that stuck with me. And so, for example, with math, I had a very difficult, a lot of difficulty with math. And it was hard to compute things. And so these days, they, they kind of explained to me this way of just paying attention to what makes sense to you. You know, so they kind of explained to me this example of, uh, you know, what's 13 times 25? I don't know what that is off the top of my head. <laughs> but you know what I do know? I know what 10 times 25 is. Yeah. And I know what 3 times 25 is. So you got the 25, you got your 13, so you got your 10 and your 25, your 3, I mean your 25 and your 3, and you just add it up. What's 10 times 25? 250. What's 3 times 25? 75. 325, right? Wow. Hmm. That makes sense to me. Right. That makes sense to me. I'm not stupid. I'm not stupid. I just didn't know how I actually learned. And I think if we can have more educators take that perspective of actually analyzing, like, wow, 
you know, you, you're a more visual person, huh? Yeah, and that's what I do. When I do math, I kind of picture these things in my head. And now, as an adult, that's how I do math. Yep. I literally think about, okay, I don't know what that is, but I know what 10 plus, 10 plus 10 is or 10 times 10 is. So I'll just, I just kind of break them up in my head. But that's what works for me. That may not work for other people. And I think the more that we can do that, the more that we can introduce our youth to how they can excel with their unique qualities, I think the transformation can almost be autonomous, mm -hmm. as in the case of me and other people. So the idea is to breathe in inspiration into them and let them make the choice. Make the choice so critical, so stark, that hey, if you do this, you can really have a different life. And that's what I embraced, and I've seen a lot of other people embrace it, and part of what I dedicate my life to these days is helping people realize that. Mm. So your story clearly is a really inspirational one, especially for <clears throat> educators who maybe feel that they're at wit's end and trying to figure out you know, um, what to do with um, Bobby because he never comes to class, he doesn't listen to me and what have you. Um, and I'm sure that middle school principal who had enough and, and expelled you and kicked you out, um, I'm sure he's probably driven past some of the uh, buildings that you had a hand in designing. You know? So your, your, your story is an incredibly inspiring and hopeful one. Um, so what can we do? You mentioned teachers um, being honest and having honest words and helping individual students sort of see these other ways of learning. Um, but what can we do on a, on a bigger scale or system-wide to make it to where the story of Tramiel isn't an outlier type story, but it's, it's closer to the norm when it comes to uh, foster youth or youth who are struggling in school in general? So besides that individual teacher effort, um, what suggestions do you have um, for how the educational system could help um, increase the educational outcomes for foster youth and youth dealing with um, really troubling circumstances? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. So it, it, it sort of relates to some of my earlier answers of, I think you have to start with the youth, okay? So you look at the young man, you look at the young woman, and what are the greatest challenges that we're facing? Are they not graduating from high school? Are they not paying attention to college, I mean, uh, to class? Are they not doing their homework? Are they showing up to class but not doing the homework? Are they doing the homework but only partially doing it? Right. Do they do the homework but they just don't do well on a test? So I think having a greater sense of what the challenges are for the students is the first step. But that requires us to take a less standardized approach and a, and a more, you know, uh, I don't want to say alternative approach, but a more approach that addresses each student and the manner that, that they're in. And I think the other thing that we can really start to think about is the, the role of a teacher. You know, in, in, other, in other countries, teachers are revered and respected and community leaders. And I think that, that's, that's the perspective that I hold because I, st I have, as I mentioned earlier, I have college professors. I, I'm just going to name them, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Richard Takagaki, right? When he was my 11th grade world history teacher. To this yep. day, I still remember the way that this man taught history. Hmm. And, and I will never forget. I mean, this guy was better than, you know, a little kid watching Wishbone. I mean, this right. guy was incredible. He, 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 he said, look, hmm. you know, I'm gonna give you the standard issue textbook. Uh, it's your right to have it. But just so you know, we're gonna go above and beyond that. And just the way he approached history and the perspective that he brought, he made things interesting to kids who, mm -hmm. you see them in the other class and they're just disruptive, but in that right. he just had this way. My 11th grade chemistry teacher, uh, Mr. Uh, Kevin Paulson, I was not good at chemistry at uh -huh. all, not at all. But this guy just infused so much just passion and intrigue in the way that he taught, whether it was on St. Patrick's Day and making something ignite and green and just really making it interesting. And you know right. what? When I took the state exam for chemistry, um, you know, the, 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 the annual standardized test, right. I tested in the 80th percentile. Dang. And okay. I didn't find out that that entitled me to a scholarship check until like 10th hmm. grade year, uh, t uh, sophomore year of college. I was going through the mail and I found this check. 
Oh, wow. And it was because of what I did. And right, but that entirely due to that teacher. Damn. Entirely due to that teacher. So I think the more that we can give uh, our educators flexibility to be a little bit more creative in their instruction, um, I think it can have results because that little hour or two hours that a student is in a, a classroom mm -hmm. can be transformational. It can be the the only source of a good time that they have going on in their life. And there were a lot of times where I was going through a lot of difficult things, but you know what? When I was in Mr. Takagaki's class, oh man, it, mm. it, was, it was amazing. Wow. And so I think that if you look at it from that perspective, you know, obviously there's challenges, there's issues that uh, students have to deal with. And, you know, we're not asking teachers to become the therapist and the, you know, and the corrections officer right. and everything, the parent, you know, but there is an opportunity to reach them on a higher end. And if you can find a way to tickle their fantasy, mm -hmm. if you can find a way to create intrigue, you can sow the seed of transformation and water it and you can just kind of watch them blossom. I mean, and sometimes it took years mm. to figure it out, but I think that is one of the more critical things that I would say, simply because of my experience and so many people who have shared stories. I mean, Mr. Takagaki, I actually, so these, these, these things still drive me to this day. I remember I was in college. I actually went to the school district website, found his number, figured I'd just give his classroom a call. He picked up and I just thanked him. Nice. Four years later, right? right. That, 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 because he was so impactful to me. Right. So thankful for him. And I think that if we can approach it in that manner, we can start to have transformation in a way that, you know, some people think you need a lot more hands-on, uh, you know, activity to, to, to come to light. Hmm. Right. So, uh, First of all, I mean, just incredible stories. And uh, if anybody out there maybe knows uh, Mr. Takagaki on uh, Facebook, tag him uh, <laughs> on this post. Shout out to Mr. Uh, Takagaki. And who was the chemistry teacher? Kevin Paulson. Kevin Paulson. We're on the lookout for two great teachers out there. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, but something uh, that the state of California is doing to, uh, to try and uh, maybe help and, and invest in um, our brilliant young folks and in particular in um, our foster youth who we know from the data that we talked about at the beginning of the seminar we're not doing a good enough job currently um, of supporting their needs um, but the state of california has the local control funding formula which targets additional resources to districts that uh, serve high numbers of uh, low-income students, of English learners, and of foster youth. So, um, you know, this is an exciting moment, and uh, districts have to come up with a plan about how to, uh, to spend those resources in service of supporting foster youth. And, um, you know, I think there's probably a lot of things that might be obvious uses of those dollars, but I'm wondering, as someone who's walked in those, those shoes yourself, if you can tell us, um, from your perspective, what might be some of the things that, you know, if your schools had had additional dollars that they could have done to better support you um, along your way? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, first of all, I think credit, credit to, you know, the state of California for, you know, attempting to, to solve a, a challenge that, that needs to be solved, right? Um, and, and it's a great benefit to be able to have additional resources. Uh, but, but this is not just even a question school districts grapple with. I think this is a question that any nonprofit organization grapples mm -hmm. with, and that is, at what point do I perform direct service, and at what point do I recognize that maybe there is a partner within the continuum of care, right? And so the continuum of care, you look at it as, you know, you think about all the nonprofits, right? And you think about certain ones do have certain specializations in certain areas, right? And so United Friends of the Children focuses on housing and, and, uh, and education, but there might be another agency that focuses on teenage moms, right? So no matter where a youth is in their, you know, in their respective life struggle, there is a continuum that grabs them so that they don't fall between the cracks. And I think that, that that's a question that can, can really come up and be, be difficult to answer. And I think for us 
especially in our nonprofit boardroom, and I think a lot of other nonprofits that I've worked with, and and, and etc. Um, I think we it, it starts off by having a good sense of okay, what are we really good at, and what would be a tremendous learning curve a very expensive learning curve mm -hmm. for us to learn how to do that and does it make sense to identify community partners such as United Friends of the Children or other organizations who have been doing it and doing it for a very long time and so I would really encourage school districts to look at it as an opportunity to partner uh, with organizations who basically have already learned the learning curve who've already had the lessons learned so that you know those dollars aren't spent learning the same lessons mm -hmm. that so many people have learned. You know, United Friends of the Children, uh, we have our program called uh, College Readiness. And what it is, is it's an 11 year continuum. We start with foster youth as young as in the seventh grade. And we stick with them. We contact, you know, once a month, they're going through uh, college, uh, not, not college work, but, but workshops that deal with a variety of issues specific to their, to their grade level and their maturity level and all the way through college. It's, a, it's an 11 year continuum. And one of the things that we've done and we've been very successful in is working with school districts to identify, okay, you know, the population of foster youth uh, within the school districts and what we can do to come in and bring our services uh, into the community because when you look at our track record, you know, 95% of the youth who've been in our program at least four years graduate from high school uh, as compared to, you know, the statute you saw, 58%. So I think that kind of discussion of how do we reach out, one, is this something that we feel like we can do? Uh, or is it something that we really maybe should consult with and find another community partner who's been doing this for a while? And I think the, the second question is, is what's the best method and manner to, to, to go about it? Mm -hmm. And I think that that will help tremendously because you think about, so for example, United Friends of the Children, uh, every single person who has contact, direct contact with youth, uh, they, they are trained in trauma-informed care, right? And so where a normal person might see a foster youth have an episode and have an assumption, these people know because of, they know how trauma and how, you know, you have a traumatic experience in your childhood and how little things can trigger uh, something huge. They're trained to deal with that and equip the youth and rein them back in, whereas a person who may, maybe not have that specific knowledge might arrive at a different conclusion and might take the wrong approach with that youth, which might further make the situation worse rather than it being a temporary setback and getting back on the path. And so that's a perfect example where I think that, I think school districts should one, understand the needs, and two, ask yourself the question, okay, who and what entity is the best uh, to, to, to deal with this so that we're not just spending dollars, we're, we're being effective with mm -hmm. what we're doing. Yeah. All right, well, we definitely want to thank you for uh, lending your perspective to this topic and coming onto the show. Um, a lot of times as educators, you know, we see the reports and we see the stats and we, you know, hear this term or that term in PD, but to hear from uh, a perspective of somebody who's not only lived it, but has also dedicated a lot, much of his life's work towards addressing this problem is something that's very valuable and very much appreciated. So thank you for coming through. We are certainly going to link your acceptance speech and a link to United Friends of the Children for those of you um, who would like to learn more about that, um, that um, organization on our website, which is aotashow.com. So we make sure for definitely look at his acceptance speech because it was a very inspiring speech that I think, you know, especially now that school is getting back into session, um, teachers, principals, district leaders uh, could really look at that and sort of um, see that as a reminder that, you know, that eighth grader who you want to kick out and no other middle school wants to take them, that eighth grader has a ton of promise and it's just about us learning how to best uh, support this, this young man or woman uh, who's going through it. So thank you again for coming on, onto our show. Yeah. Hopefully we'll have you back again sometime soon. Sounds great. Yeah, right. thank you. Uh, maybe just one last quick thing. If there yes. are viewers who, uh, you know, were as compelled by what you had to say as, as I was, um, and they're interested in supporting uh, your organization, is there a website that they can go to um, or a place where they oh, can nice. donate? Yeah, absolutely. You can go to the, uh, the website, uh, unitedfriends.org. Uh, UFC, we have a 
YouTube page, Facebook page, uh, or you can just ask Cousin Google. Just Google United Friends of the Children. <laughs> we'll come right up, and there's just a lot of things that we, we do to support foster youth. So our mission, we we have a pretty good track record of supporting uh, the, 14, 000, the 1,400 youth that we serve, but, you know, there are 30,000, and there are a lot of youth to serve. So we're looking to bring our, our approach, which is, you know, relationship-based approaches uh, to dealing with youth, youth and watching them transform their life. We're interested in bringing that to more communities because we really feel like stories like mine mm -hmm. can be the standard and not the exception if we really just treat all children as if they were our own. Right. So. Right. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Wow, that was a great seminar discussion, Manuel. Um, you know, Tramel had so many interesting things to say, uh, both from the standpoint of someone who who knows the issue and yeah. also someone who's walked the path. Yeah. So just just incredible stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for uh, coming through, Tramel, and everybody else. Please remember to visit our website aotashow.com for links to his acceptance speech and a whole bunch of other episode extras. All right, now we move to today's assessment. Manuel, what do you got for us? All right, so this fall marks my 15th year of teaching. The 15th anniversary of when I first stepped into the classroom as the person whose name was on the board and on the syllabus. Like every teacher, I have a crystal clear memory of that very first day. The nervousness, the fear that my plans were all gonna fall apart, I also remember the sore throat from talking too much and the tired feet from standing all day. And most especially, I remember the uneasy feeling I had from having lied to my students all day, pretending to be an intimidating, take no shit beast of a teacher who wouldn't tolerate any talking, any games, or any nonsense. I was trained under the old school, no smiling until November method, and my mentor teacher modeled for me how to be a cold commander of the classroom. That was 15 years ago, and I've come a long way since then. Hell, it only took about a week or so for my natural self to come out and for students to see that I was less Robocop and more Detective Peralta in the classroom. I'm thankful that I survived in the profession long enough to learn this and other lessons about how to be an effective, authentic, and empowering teacher. And above all, I'm proud to represent the contingent of teachers who made it to their 15th year. It's no secret that this is a tough profession. For years, it's been said that half of the people who enter the profession exit within the first five years. Recent NCES data says that that's a bit of a reach. That real percentage is closer to 17% in terms of teachers who quit by year five. But year 15, most teachers don't get anywhere near that. Hell, I've been at the same school for the past 10 years in a row and NCES says that only 15% of teachers have stayed at the same site for that long. Teacher attrition continues to plague American schools, particularly those in high need communities. A report by the Learning Policy Institute cites an annual teacher attrition rate of 8%, which is more than double the attrition rate of high performing education systems in countries like Finland and, Sing and Singapore. So why so much turnover? It's not retirement. That only accounts for about 18% of the departures. The rest leave largely because they're unhappy. More than half of those who leave their classroom are dissatisfied with the lack of autonomy, the pressure of countless assessment and accountability measures, a lack of administrative support, or all of the above. And as bad as the pay often is, only 18% of teachers cite financial reasons as the main reason why they left their classroom. Now there's some painful truth in that number. Even though teachers are underpaid, many of us bear with that and take second or third jobs when possible because none of us entered this field for the pay. We're here for our students and too often we accept really bad pay and conditions as the sacrifice we have to make to serve our students. So the fact that I've reached my 15th year is a bit of a rare case. This is especially true when you consider my race and my work site. That Learning Policy Institute report, which was authored by Desiree Carver-Thomas and Linda Darling-Hammond, states that black teacher turnover rates are extremely high, 
about 50% higher than a turnover rate for non-black teachers. A big reason for this is that black teachers are more likely to serve in under-resourced communities and turnover is critically high in these schools. Poor working conditions, oppressive accountability measures, lack of teacher preparation and experience, a gross lack of resources, vicarious trauma associated with serving in a high need area, and a lack of leadership opportunities and input make many of these schools a veritable revolving door of teachers. Overall, the teacher turnover rate in Title I schools is nearly 50% greater than that in non-Title I schools. And turnover rates are 70% higher for teachers in schools serving the largest concentrations of students of color. That's a terrible picture. I'm a black teacher who has served in these so-called Title I schools my entire career. And my present school site is almost entirely students of color. When my friends and I were kids coming up in South Sacramento, we used to talk about not wanting to become a statistic. And that really rings true for me as a teacher. It doesn't have to be this way. All of the data together suggests to me that the unifying cause of high teacher turnover is a genuine systemic lack of love and support for the individuals who step into the classroom with hopes and dreams of educating America's children. On my final day as a student teacher, a veteran said something to our cohort of newbies that I'll never forget. He told us that we were stepping into an honorable line of work, but one that would be utterly thankless. When thinking about the day that his decades long career would end, he said, when it's all over, I'll be lucky if they say my name on the PA system. Rookie Rustin took that as bitter, over the hill teacher talk. 15-year veteran Rustin reflects on that moment and sees this as the sad reality of the profession in too many districts. I've been in the game long enough to witness some mighty, magical teachers make quiet, unceremonious exits. Two veterans who inspired much of my work and who ushered generations of children to college and beyond spent their final years in the profession being shoved aside and pushed out. One was forced to move out of the classroom that she had for decades and into a tiny room down the hall to give a newer teacher, who didn't even stay in the room a full year, some more space. Another teacher great suddenly had phantom credentialing issues that the dis district tried to remove him over despite all of his paperwork actually being in order. It's a cold game out here and at times it seems that a PA announcement actually would be a hopeful view of the end. And when I say this game is cold, this isn't just based on what I've seen happen to others. I've experienced it myself. Last year, my district issued me a pink slip after all I've done and accomplished over the last decade working there. I've never felt as abandoned and disregarded as I did when I received that notice. I quite literally had to testify in front of a judge that I was qualified to stay and to teach. That's with my UCLA doctorate, with my Harvard master's degree, with my national and local awards for excellence in teaching. They nearly ran me out right before I could say, wow, I actually made it to 15. Damn, it's a cold game. No wonder so few make it this far. It doesn't have to be this way though. I know firsthand what it takes to make it to 15. A major factor is having capable administrators. I've had nothing but supportive principals from day one to day whatever this is. Each of my principals made me feel valued and supported. Each welcomed my input. Each gave me the autonomy I needed to craft the particular lessons, units, and courses that my learners need. And each has had my back whenever a tough decision needed to be made regarding a student's performance or behavior in class. Aside from authentic administrative support, Teachers also need fair compensation for the work that they do. Teachers sacrifice a lot, and many won't say that they left because of the money, but Carver Thomas and Darling Hammond write that teachers in districts with maximum teacher salaries above $72,000 are 20 to 31% less likely to leave their schools than teachers in lower paying districts. For me, there were some lean years in the past. But at year 15, I'm fortunate to work in a place where my salary allows for me to pay a mortgage and to provide. But if I was just now entering the field on a rookie contract, I don't know if I could stay here with housing costs as high as they are today. 
It's taken a wave of teacher strikes to get some states to finally wake up and pay teachers what they need to survive and provide for their families. And if we're going to decrease the national turnover rate, we need to hear their calls and invest more in funding our education system across the country. I'm gonna celebrate my 15th. I have so many great memories and I'm gonna share them online throughout the year. But I know that the danger of an unceremonious PA announcement type exit is real. But until that day, I'll continue to advocate for this profession that has given me the best years of my life. Wow. Uh, first thing, Manuel, that was incredible. Uh, second thing I want to say is, folks, where else in all of media are you going to get discussion like you get on this show from real educators no about real stuff in education? I love this episode and I love mm. doing this show with you. Uh, the whole time you were talking, I was sitting here wanting to scream <laughs> out, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That too. Uh, so many little gems of truth in there. Um, you know, the, the dignity of our profession, it feels like is often kind of under attack. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, in a world where, yes, we have a lot of urgency around making improvements in our profession, uh, that gets co-opted into, I think, sometimes a climate and a culture that forgets that um, there's going to be no one to help improve if we make this a profession that feels undesirable to people. And in particular, if we make it a profession that feels undesirable to the new teachers coming into the profession. And folks who are working hard, getting advanced degrees, and looking around saying, do I want this incredibly stressful, difficult job um, that comes with some benefits, but some limited earning potential, um, and in some states, horrible earning potential, um, or do I want to do something else? And uh, you know, this is part of the reason that we have teachers teacher shortages in most states across the country. Um, and the problem, the data tells us, is only going to be getting worse um, as the lion's share of teachers uh, begin to enter retirement or even have already begun entering retirement. So I'm really glad you, you spoke to this. Uh, I think it's something we don't talk enough about in our profession, which is investing in people and making our profession a desirable, respected, honored profession. And, uh, you know, folks like yourself who are doing this work, been making a difference in the lives of young people, who've been good members of a team, need to be valued. And not just, um, you know, in the metaphorical sense, but in the economic sense, right. in the direct language that we use with people. Uh, you know, it's, that's an aspect of, of the system that we can change. So thank you for, for voicing that today. You're welcome. To close us out today, we've got a special shout out to the National Education Association, also known as the NEA, the nation's largest teachers union, which in its recent annual civil and human rights program awarded Colin Kaepernick its highest honor, the President's Award. The former NFL quarterback who has been blacklisted for his kneeling during the national anthem, as well as his political activism off the field, was recognized for his work to fight racial oppression through education and social justice teaching. Kaepernick's Know Your Rights Camp trains youth in Chicago, New York, New Orleans, and Oakland to know their rights and how to successfully navigate interactions with law enforcement. So big shout out to Cap for doing the good work in the community and a huge shout out to the NEA for using their platform to recognize a public figure who puts his money where his mouth is and who risked his career in the prime of his career to protest racial injustice on the national stage. Shout out to NEA, shout out Colin Kaepernick. All right, folks, that does it for episode seven. Please remember to share this with your friends and like our page and subscribe on YouTube. We'll see you next time.